Now today, we're going to consider a long unit in the book of Isaiah, chapters 13 through 24. Yes, I just said that. <laughs> chapters 13 through 24. It's a long unit. It's about the rule and the reign of God over the nations, over the whole world, and over everyone. This is a very important message. It's about the accountability of the nations, the world, everyone to God. It's a long section about judgment. And in all of this, God is revealed as the righteous one. This is so key to our understanding of what's happening here. In all of this, God is revealed as the righteous one whose glory is revealed in judgment as well as in his salvation. Why such a long passage this morning? Because the chapters form a coherent unit with a single message, and that is the lordship of God over the whole world. Sometimes people believe that if they don't believe in God or they don't believe the Bible, or they may be a part of another religion, or of no religion at all, then they're somehow not accountable to God or to the Bible. In other words, it's a common belief that the reality of being accountable to God and to His Word is based on whether or not we sign up for it. Whether or not we accept it. But that is a misunderstanding. Isaiah chapters 13 through 24 tell us that God is Lord over all the nations, all people, and the whole world, and that all are accountable to Him, and all are judged by His Word. It's a single message of this whole unit of Isaiah, so we're considering it as a whole. Now, I can't help but say at the outset, before we even read our text, or before we even begin, I can't help to say at the outset that by the end of the message, we are going to see that God, who is the judge of the world, is the righteous one, and He has provided for us a right way to be made right with Him. There's grace in Christ Jesus. Still setting the context here before we read chapter 24, remember that chapters 1 through 12 were a long unit that focused on Judah and Israel, God's people and their sins, God's judgment against them, his discipline on them, but also God's keeping grace and a remnant that God will keep. And in these chapters, the Messiah came into view and salvation and the newness to come. When we come to chapter 13 through 27, the focus now shifts from just the nation or God's people shifts now to the nations, to the world under judgment. We get the same message, though, of God's redeeming grace and his final salvation in this new world. Chapters 13 through 24 are the judgment part of that. Chapter 24 that we're going to read is a summary of the judgment of the nations because it's the judgment of the whole world. So we're going to read that chapter and then we'll go back and talk about the others. Stand with me in honor of God's word. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. 
And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth. Its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scourged. And a few men are left. The wine mourns. The vine languishes. And the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. And the noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. And every house is shut up. So that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations. As when an olive tree is beaten. As at the gleaning of the grape harvest is done, they lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away. I waste away. Woe is me. For the traitors have betrayed with betrayal. The traitors have betrayed terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit. He who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunk man it sways like a hut its transgression lies heavy upon it and it falls and will not rise again on that day the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on earth they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit they shall be shut up as in a prison and after many days they will be punished The moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before his elders. This is God's word. You may be seated. It's hard to miss in this chapter the totality. The universality of accountability to God and of judgment and therefore the lordship of God over all. Accepting it, signing up for it, is not a factor in its reality. Verse 1 says, 
Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. Verse 3, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. Verse 4, the earth mourns and withers. Verse 5, the earth lies defiled. The use of the word earth does not mean that what's coming is a mere ecological disaster. The earth will be included in what's coming as it will give way to a new heaven and a new earth. But Isaiah is referring to the people of the earth who will be judged. Verse 2, the end of verse 1, the earth will be twisted in its surface and scattered its inhabitants scattered, and it will be for people and priest, verse 2, for slave and master, for maid and mistress, for buyer and seller, for lender and borrower, borrower, for creditor and debtor. This is all people. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, verse 5, under its inhabitants. This is all people under this judgment. Verse 6, the inhabitants, the people will suffer for their guilt. This is judgment on the world. It's judgment on the people of the world. Chapter 24 is a summary of the judgment of the nations that started in chapter, 20, in chapter 13 and goes through chapter 23. It's been said that the judgment of the nations in those chapters, 13 through 23, are like many judgments. M-I-N-I, many, that many, many judgments of the nations in history that are pointing, they're a prelude to the final judgment of the whole world that we see in this chapter. It's a way of saying judgment is happening now among the nations and judgment will come. Chapters 13 through 23 tell us that God is active in the world, in history among the nations, before the final judgment. We don't get to see how always. There are times when we're reading the Old Testament and we see exactly how God's judgment played out against the nation, but not always. We are simply assured that God judges the nations. And even though Isaiah names the nations... The details of this judgment, time, means, are not always given to us in his prophecies. Even today, we don't get to see how God judges the nations at times, but we know that he is. This is the testimony of these chapters. Ten nations are mentioned in chapters 13 through 23. They surround Israel, and they're named You can go home this week and read these chapters and you'll read about Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Syria, Cush, which is Ethiopia, Egypt, Edom, Arabia, and Tyre. These nations are judged in these chapters for various reasons, but all of them having to do with their pride. Their pride against the Lord. Their pride against other nations seen in their idolatry, their ruthlessness, their acts of aggression, their oppression of others. 
The first one is the judgment of Babylon. I'm not going to go through all ten of them. I want to focus on Babylon. It's the first one in the list. Because many people, and I think it's right to do so, take Babylon as somewhat of a representative of all the nations. In that oracle, chapters 13 and 14 against Babylon, in that oracle, we're told that the whole world is judged for its pride and its evil and its iniquity and its ruthlessness. Babylon throughout the Bible is known as the world itself. It's the city. It's the world. It's the human system. It's human society acting without reference to God. You can start at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, go all the way through Revelation toward the end of the destruction of Babylon and see that this is representative of human society in whatever form that's acting in ways that ignore God without reference to God in rebellion to God and it will be put down in the end. Babylon was a city but it also represents the whole world in a state of rebellion against God as it exalts itself. Here are some words about Babylon, about the world system. Isaiah 14, 11, your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O star. Son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly and in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol and to the far reaches of the pit. This is the boast, the pride of mankind, of Babylon. Yes, in Isaiah's day, that was a prophecy against Babylon. But it's the boast of mankind against God in all of history and all of the world. In our chapter today, we read in verse 10 about Babylon, Babylon, the wasted city. That's the reference. That's what that wasted city is. It's the, it's the city. It's human society represented in Babylon. It's Babylon of Isaiah's day, but it's Babylon representing human society ignoring God, judged by God. And so all the nations are acting without God and ignoring him and will be judged. Other nations are mentioned in these first chapters, 13 through 23, Assyria is mentioned in chapter, 20, in chapter 14. And Assyria shows us that even when God in his sovereignty raises up one nation to judge another, the first nation he raised up will be judged itself because it acts in pride and hatred 
with evil intent. Syria is mentioned in Isaiah's day, chapter 17. Interestingly, Syria actually had an encounter with God through the prophet Elisha, 2 Kings, which means that this nation knew of God. No excuse. We'll come back to that theme in the book of Romans. We often think, oh, well, these nations in the days of Israel in the Old Testament, they didn't know about God. They can't be held accountable. Not true. Not true at all. They knew of God and they are accountable. Syria shows us that. Cush, which is Ethiopia and Egypt in verse 20 or chapter 20, they are warned through Isaiah. Isaiah was commanded in chapter 20. To act out the judgment of God. It was a drama in which he walked around naked and barefoot for three years. You may have heard somewhere along the way that there's a story like that in the Bible. Yes, it's true. But do you know why? It was an acted out prophecy to say that Ethiopia and Egypt would themselves be in exile. And be marched out naked and barefoot to exile. But it was also a warning that the nation of Israel, God's people, should not trust in them. Should not be in league with them against Assyria, the great power that threatened Israel at this time. God's judging the nations. He's not picking on the nations. The nations are in rebellion against God. Now we must say, That the glory and the grace of God and some sign of hope is also seen in these judgments, in these chapters. For instance, chapters 18 and 19 tell us that God is going to show his mercy and his grace because nations are seen in those chapters as actually coming to worship the Lord. We see that throughout Isaiah. Yes, the Lord will judge, but the Lord also is a gracious and compassionate God who has his people from every nation and they will worship him. But this unit is primarily about the judgment of God played out in history. Now the question might be, and it is actually, the question is asked in numerous ways as people bristle at this language of of judgment. The question is, on what basis does God judge the nations? And on what basis will he judge the world? In other words, does God really have the right to judge in this way? And if so, what gives him the right to do it? Well, there's a key verse in our chapter. Look at verse 5, chapter 24. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, the inhabitants, the people, for they, the people, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. That word for gives us the reason for judgment. And this is said, for is said of all of the inhabitants of the earth. For what? What's the reason? Transgress the laws, 
violated the statutes and broken the everlasting covenant. Now, this is key to understanding the whole section from chapter 13 through this chapter. It's very important. It's one of the few times that the reason for the judgment is given. The judgment is described. You'll notice as I read chapter 24, the judgment is described in many, many ways. But it's one of the few times that the reason for the judgment is given. Transgress the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. So we would ask, what laws, what statutes, what covenant is being referred to here? Now, there are a few interpretations. I'm going to tell you what I believe. Because this judgment of the nations and the world, this is the judgment of the nations and the world universally. In other words, because it's the world in general, I believe that the laws, the statutes, and the covenant that's being referred to here is also general. It's also universal, which means... I don't think this is a reference to the specific laws and the covenant that God gave to the nation of Israel. I think this is the universal, everlasting covenant laws and statutes between God and between mankind at creation. The laws, the statutes that are written in the consciences of people who are created in the image of God. These laws and statutes written in the conscience, written in the heart, written in the mind, speak of their creator. And they speak of how the creator governs the world. And there are laws and statutes that govern the relations of people. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says that God created man in his image. Male and female, he created them. The image of God in a human means that we can think. We can think in basic ways and we can think in basic categories. These are basic categories to an everlasting covenant that everybody can do. We can think in the categories of God and humans. We can think in the categories of creator and creature. We can think in the category of rule and authority and accountability and submission. We can think in the category of design and purpose. We can do this because we're created in the image of God. We know by virtue of creation, by being created in the, in the image of God, we know that there is a creator and that we are creatures. When someone says they don't believe this, they're choosing not to believe this. We know that this is. Because we are created in the image of our creator. We know because there's creator and creature that there is order to this world and this life. We know that there's something to which we, are, the creatures, are to submit. We know this. We know that we are to honor our Creator. That's why in Genesis 1 and 2, 
It's God who is doing the explaining. It's God who is doing the instructing. In the garden, it's God who is doing the assessing of Adam and Eve and their actions. This is basic reality. It is basic reality. This is the way things are. And it's the way things work. That's why this is called, in Isaiah 24, 5, that's why it's called laws and statutes. That's why this is the original covenant that God established with mankind. And the order of that covenant, the order is this, God and man. Man with God. How do we relate to God? There's an order to that. Man with nature. That's given in Genesis 1 and 2. Man with man. Human to human. Man with himself. All of this is in what we're calling here the everlasting covenant which we have broken. And that's why the judgment of God is upon the world. Now we hear this again in Romans chapters 1 and 2. That's why I've come to the conclusion that in Isaiah 24, 5, when he says everlasting covenant, he's referring to the creation covenant and the way God ordered things and that this is known to every human being because it's repeated in Romans chapters 1 and 2. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says this. The wrath of God is against unrighteousness because the truth, the truth, the creation, laws, and statutes, and covenant, and order, the truth has been suppressed. And because it's been suppressed, the wrath of God is against it. Continuing on in Romans 1, verses 18 through 23. He says this truth, uh, Paul says in Romans, this truth is plain to us. That God has shown it to us. That we can understand it. Whether or not we acknowledge it as God being Lord and Jesus being Lord, we can understand this. Paul is reaffirming what we've already said. We know, we know that there is a God. We know That all humans are created in his image. All humans, equally so, regardless of nationality, race, and ethnicity. We know this. We know that babies in the womb are human. We know it. We know that male and female are aspects of the creation. We know this. We know that terror and murder is wrong. We don't have to debate it. We know it. We know what marriage is. We know what parenting is. We know what work is. All of these things are revealed to us. Plain to us, Paul said in Romans. Shown to us by God. He says these things are perceived by humans since the creation of the world. Paul is just repeating Genesis 1, he's just repeating Isaiah 24. We've known this since the beginning of time. So he says, there is no excuse for not knowing, not acknowledging, 
and not keeping this truth. No excuse for anyone. We know God, but we don't honor Him and we don't thank Him, Paul said in Romans 1. We claim to be wise, but we foolishly exchange the glory of God for the images resembling men and animals and birds and reptiles. We are idolaters. Paul said in Romans 1 verse 29 and following, because of this, because we've known this from the beginning, it's in our conscience and we suppress it, we push it down, we turn away from it. He says we have become, the world has become filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, slander, hatred of God, insolence, haughtiness, boastfulness. The world is inventing evil, disobeying parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, doing these things and giving hearty approval to everyone else who does them. All the while, Paul said, we know better because we know there's a God, because we're created in his image, because we can think in these categories, and because we've rejected him. So this is Isaiah 24, 5. This is Romans 1 and 2. And this is the reason for the judgment of God and the wrath to come. And this is why God is righteous in his judgment. This is why he is right to judge. This is why in verse 16, we'll come to in a moment. He's called the righteous one. We're so short-sighted when we get angry with God because he is judge. We're so short-sighted when we bristle at the language of judgment when it's all through the Bible. Because we don't understand the depths of human sin. I've spent about 10 minutes trying to lay it out for you, but we just don't understand it. But Isaiah is speaking of it. As we said, the first, few, first several chapters, 13 through 23, are the judgment on the nations of Isaiah's day. And then there's the judgment of God that continues today, Romans chapters 1 and 2 that we looked at. And the chapter we're looking at now, all these many judgments are leading up to the final judgment. Do you, do, you, do you hear this? And do you see this? And do you believe this? As I said, signing up for it, agreeing with it, is not, is not really a factor in its reality. Its, its reality is... A reality. But you have to see it and believe it and respond to it the right way. Now, look what happens <clears throat> in chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten. As at the gleaning, when the grape harvest is done, meaning there's a remnant left there. Some are still left. There's still some olives, 
still some grapes, not much, but some. And then when it says they, they who are left, this remnant, lift up their voices, they sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise of glory to the righteous one. Something's happened in the midst of this judgment. A remnant is left, a few olives and some grapes. They're going to sing for joy because of the majesty of the Lord. They're going to give glory to the name of the Lord. They're going to praise the glory of the righteous one. This is God himself. In all of this, God remains the righteous one. How so? How can we say in the middle of all of this that God is the righteous one? He is righteous in his judgment. Not to judge unrighteousness to this degree, or any degree, but certainly to this degree, the unrighteousness of humanity, would itself be unrighteous. We know this. We know this. It's part of the eternal covenant built into creation. We know because we can think in the categories that for a righteous God not to judge unrighteousness would not be a righteous act. We know this. God is righteous. So we can be assured that he will judge unrighteousness. Terrorist attacks on innocent people will be judged. They may be brought to justice in this world. We hope so. But they may not. Evil people do die before justice. But they will be judged by God. Hebrews tells us it's appointed unto man once to die. And after that comes the judgment. And brother and sister. In your personal life. Every act against you. Every act of sin and abuse. And cruelty against you will be judged. You may not see it. You might. You might not in this world. But God doesn't forget. God knows you. And he knows what you've experienced. And he will judge. He's the righteous one. The righteous judgment of God against sin and evil and rebellion will result in the revelation. It will result in a revelation of him as the righteous one. Verse 16. We say, oh, I don't want to talk about that. It might sound like God is mean. Judgment says God is righteous. And in the end, it will be to the praise of his glory. But what about the fact that we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God? Romans chapter 3, verse 23. What about that? Paul does something, you know. He starts out in chapters 1 and 2 talking about 
the creation and the consciences of people and the violation of that and the suppression of truth and the wrath of God and God turning them over. And by the time he gets to chapter 3, he says, every one of you, all of us have gone astray and turned our own way. None of us is seeking after him. What do we do about the fact that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? God is righteous. And not only does it mean that he judges sin, but it means that God being righteous has a right way of making sinners right with himself. That will also be to the praise of the glory of his grace. When sinners can come and stand before him forgiven and made righteous. Romans 3, 21 through 26. Write it down, read it when you go home. Romans 3, 21 through 26. God sent his own son, Jesus Christ. It says God put him forth. The son, God the son, the father and the son together in our salvation. The son being put forth to be the propitiation for our sins. That means the one who paid the penalty and bore the wrath of God against our everlasting covenant breaking. Jesus, this is love. John tells us this is love. That Jesus Christ was put forth as the propitiation for our sin. The one who was judged on our behalf. The one who bore the righteous wrath of God in his own body on the cross. This is the righteousness of God. He did punish our sin and he punished it in Christ. Don't ever think that forgiveness means God doesn't punish your sin. Forgiveness means God punished your sin in God. God the Son took the wrath of God the Father on himself. And it also means, and that's righteousness, by the way. That's the righteousness, the right way of God doing this for sinners. And it also means that the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself, Jesus being perfect and righteous and keeping every law and statute and covenant and loving God perfectly like no one could or can, that righteousness of Jesus Christ is counted as ours when we trust him. Two things happen in propitiation. Our sin is taken care of because the wrath of God was absolved in Jesus Christ. And we now positively have the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to us. It's not ours. I am not a morally righteous person. It's counted as mine. He considers it as mine. Without me even becoming it in my character. He credits it to me. That is the righteousness of God. To take a sinner like you and me and bear his own wrath on our behalf and grant us the righteousness of his son that we might be free to come into his presence and to know him. And Paul said in Romans 3.23 that in doing so, this act means God is two things. He is just and he is the justifier of all who have faith in him. And all who have faith in him, and all here in in Isaiah 24, these leftover olives and grapes who are rejoicing and calling God the righteous one, these are the remnant. These are the people who believe. 
These are the people who, of Rome, who, who are in Romans who believe. These are the people who today believe. This can be you. You can give praise to the glory of the righteous one at the day of judgment. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you can have that joy because you'll know that your sin was removed. And your sin, and my sin, our sin, was described in Isaiah 13 through 23 and 24 and Romans 1 and 2. And the weight of that resting upon you today, the burden of that can be removed. If you will repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ, and you will come to judgment, and you will sing for joy of the righteousness of God. And if you already believe this, then you ought to be singing. Now, the chapter closes. With the glory of God, verse 23, the glory of God before the people. That's setting us up for next week. And so we'll have to come back to it. But for today, what is the message? God is Lord over all. All are accountable to Him. And I say this with reverence, and I hope you'll understand the way in which I say it. Fear God. Secondly, his judgments are sure now and to come. We may not see it and we may not understand it in this world. We may not get to see it, but we are assured the righteous one will judge rightly. So, rest in him. Third, Jesus took your judgment. So, trust him. And fourth, some from all the nations, a remnant, will be saved. So let's proclaim him.